In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I grew up in a very particular context. Uh, my parents made the decision at a very early age to send me to Christian, a private Christian school from K-4 through 12th grade. And so my entire experience of education prior to college was in private school. And each day at this school started the exact same way. We would gather together in our homeroom. We would say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. We would then turn and say the Pledge of Allegiance to the Christian flag. Then we would take care of whatever kind of like opening activities that we needed to take care of for the day. And then we would go directly into a Bible lesson. My parents had raised us in the Pentecostal church, but this particular school was a Southern Baptist school. And so I can also remember my parents driving me to school about 25 minutes both ways, and I can remember the conversation that we often had in those elementary years. Josh, this is a good school, and these are good people, but they believe things a little bit differently than we do, so just be careful what you hear. This gave me a bit of caution in K4 and K5. I wondered what kind of things these people were going to tell me that we disagreed with. And one of my earliest childhood memories was a morning that started like any other. We said our pledge allegiance to the flag. We said our pledge allegiance to the Christian flag. And then my probably K5 or first grade teacher, I can't quite remember, led us in a Bible discussion, and then she dimmed the lights and led us in a salvation prayer. I was confused in this moment. Was this the same salvation my parents had talked to me about? Should I participate in this prayer? I worried that if I prayed along here in this school, in this place, that I might disappoint my parents or I might disappoint my faith community that I had been raised in. And yet, as I heard the voices of my classmates beginning to pray around me, I worried that if I did not pray, I would disappoint my teacher, or I would disappoint my classmates, who were clearly all really involved in this prayer. I tell you this story to tell you that from a very early age, for me, the idea or ideology of Christianity and being American, for me, were almost synonymous. The identity of being American and Christian almost felt interchangeable, even though I knew that there were people in America that did not believe. I was warned about them in church. Everyone I knew was both American and Christian, and there was all this talk about us being a Christian nation. And so for me, it felt like these two things were synonymous. They were the same thing. And it wasn't until I was much older and much more responsible for my own interactions with the Bible and not just hearing them in a classroom five days a week that I began to read scriptures, much like the gospel passage that we have read today, that challenged my own view and understanding of what it means to be Christian in 21st century America. At least for a portion of time, it was 20th century America. Might give a little bit of my age away. And so I want you to pay attention to the gospel passage this morning. I think it has something to say to us about what it means um, to be followers of Christ, 
But I think it also has something to say to us about national identity and patriotism. And today is the Sunday closest to July 4th, where we recognize and celebrate our own independence. And so I think that this is an important conversation for us to have and for us to reflect upon. The gospel passage starts with Jesus. He is in the midst of his ministry. We are nine chapters into the gospel of Luke. Before this, things are kind of going at a nice clip, but things aren't moving too fast. But suddenly at the beginning of chapter 10, it is clear that Jesus feels some sort of urgency about this message that he is preaching and sharing across the land. You can see it because he begins to recognize that he will not have enough time to go to each of the places that he needs to go and share the message that he wants to share. And so he employs, he gathers together 70 additional followers, disciples beyond the twelve, and he asks them for their help. He sends them in pairs to the cities and towns that he intends to go, and he asks for them to prepare the way for him. I think his hope is, at least how I read it, is if the message is already there, they will likely receive him better once he arrives, or if they are resistant to it, he knows what he is getting himself into. These disciples are preparing for a mission unlike anything they have ever done before. And so Jesus begins to share some things with them. He tells them that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Jesus is telling them that there is just more work than any of us can do on our own. In fact, As much as we try, as much as we gather, as much as we organize, there will just still be more work. And then he tells them, and this is the part that is a bit surprising to me. It's surprising to me, I'll get there. It's surprising to me, because I don't know about you, but because my own idea of what it means to be Christian and American were so tied together that it feels like many times in the church I was promised that once I became in relationship with Jesus, once I followed him, suddenly my life would get much easier. Anyone else ever feel like that? That suddenly uh, all the barriers that were in front of me would somehow be knocked down or removed or made more porous so that I could move through them more easily. And yet, Jesus tells these first disciples, I send you out as lambs amongst wolves. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, listen, this message that you will carry might not make you as many friends as you think it will make. I am actually sending you out not into comfort and security, but into uncertainty. And perhaps if you have walked this planet... For any amount of time, you will realize that this is true for yourself as well. No matter if we carry the gospel or not, the world is full of uncertainty. And then Jesus gives more confusing instructions. He tells them to carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and to greet no one along the way. Once again, this seems opposite to the message that I was given as a child. It felt like that once I got into a relationship with Jesus, suddenly prosperity would be mine. We see a lot of smiling preachers on TV telling us that this is the truth. Suddenly your bank account will be overflowing. If only you give me this much, suddenly you will have enough and even more than you absolutely need. 
If only you follow Christ, suddenly you will climb the ladder. You will not only be able to keep up with the Joneses, but you will surpass them. And yet, Jesus tells them the exact opposite. Carry no purse, no bag. In other words, possessions are overrated. Don't worry about wealth. Don't worry about tomorrow. Worry only about today. This flies in the face of most of the conventional wisdom by which we live our lives. And then he tells them maybe the most confusing part yet. Wear no sandals. Or at least he says, take no sandals. What I hope he means is to not wear no sandals at all. Because they are about to go out on a foot journey. And this is going to be a harsh, harsh journey, at least without one pair of chacos. What's interesting here, though, is what Jesus is telling them is the things that make your journey easy, the things that make your journey easy, maybe you should set aside. The things that make you feel independent and secure, the things that tell you you have enough for the way, maybe if you will remove those things, you will truly be dependent upon me and the message that I have given you to carry. I wonder what the equivalent is for us today. I wonder what an equivalent of a pair of sandals is for us today. The thing that helps us or makes us feel secure that only if we would give it up, we would place all of our trust in God. And then the instructions become even more specific. The disciples are preparing. They are almost ready to go. And Jesus begins to tell them what will happen when they go into each place. He tells them, when you enter a town, eat whatever is set before you. As a hungry person, I love this command. This sounds great. But as a 21st century American, I think that this falls a bit flat on me because the people that Jesus would have originally been talking to had strict dietary restrictions because of the holiness code that they followed. There were things that they could not eat if they wanted to remain holy. But Jesus was telling them, don't worry about any of that. Whatever these people put before you, whenever you enter a town to share the gospel, Don't worry about all of those rules. Just sit down and eat with them. It is almost as if Jesus is saying, do you know what's more important than personal piety or personal holiness? Welcome, hospitality, relationship, and affirmation. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, too often when we create lists of affirmations, of beliefs, and walls that tell us we can't go over here and be with these kind of people, or do these kind of things, or eat these kind of things, it's almost as if these are exactly the kind of walls that we build up that keep us from actually connecting and sharing the love of God with our neighbor. He then tells them to cure the sick wherever they go. Notice there's no limit on that statement. He doesn't say cure some of the sick. He says, whatever town you go into, cure the sick that are there. Once again, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, words will not be enough. Prepare all the eloquent sermons you want. Prepare all the eloquent speeches. Put together the best PowerPoint that anyone's ever seen that will put no one to sleep. But you might just need actions as well. Because the truth is, is that the gospel is not so much about words as it is about actions. We can understand it up here, but miss it completely right here. And Jesus is calling us today, just like he was calling these disciples, to actually do something for the people that we encounter. Not simply to give them perfect knowledge, but to move in love and to do something that heals them. Because the gospel, again, is not so much about truth written on a page as it is about healing, wholeness, and liberation. 
And finally, Jesus says this to them. No matter if they receive you or not, no matter if they reject your message or they accept you, tell them that the kingdom of God has come near to them. I think this is my favorite line in the entire Bible, and it is also the one that I have wrestled with for probably more time than any other line in the Bible. A couple of years ago, I believe this was our diocesan theme for the year. The kingdom of God has come near to you. But what exactly does that mean? When I think about kingdoms, I think about static places. I think about buildings that are built. I don't think about kingdoms that move, that mobile, that are dynamic. And when I think about building the kingdom of God, at least in church terms, sometimes I think we mistake what Jesus was talking about, and we use terms like average Sunday attendance, and uh, pledge campaigns, and yearly budgets, and we talk about representation at council. And after this, well, in the midst of this pandemic, we think about expanding our digital footprint and reaching people beyond the four walls of the church. This is what we think of when we think about building the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus is talking to a group of 70 individuals that don't have really any of this available to them. Jesus instead is talking about individuals walking by foot, going from place to place, having interactions with another human being, sitting around a table with them, and sharing a meal and the gospel. And this is what Jesus calls the kingdom of God coming close. I'm going to do something that Episcopal priests don't normally do. I'm going to read something that wasn't in the lectionary for today. When I think about the dream or the vision of God for the world, when I think about the kingdom of God, this is the passage that I think of. The prophet Micah said this in chapter 4, In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be raised up above the hills. People shall stream to it, and many nations shall come, and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. And this is the part that I love. They shall beat their, their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation shall not lift up swords against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Today, as we celebrate July 4th and our own independence, I pray that we will celebrate it with this vision in mind, that the kingdom of God is not necessarily about being the greatest country in the world. It's not about having the most military might. In fact, never once does Jesus in all of the scriptures or beyond the New Testament into the Hebrew scriptures, never once does God tell us to build an empire. But over and over and over again, we are invited and called to build the kingdom of God. Not a static place with fortified walls that keep people out, but a mobile and dynamic reality that invites others in where there is enough for all, not just enough, but abundance, where people are treated with equity and justice and love. So my friends, you do have independence. You've been given it by God. May we use this independence and this freedom not to serve our own needs, but the needs of others. Because the harvest is great, but the laborers are few.
Amen.